This year has been one of the strangest years that any of us could possibly um, have ever conceived in our minds or considered <clears throat> nothing like it that we have ever lived through. And that is why our series is titled for our Christmas season, A Weary World Rejoices. Well, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. You had a wonderful time uh, being with friends and family around the Thanksgiving holiday. I know uh, I saw news articles saying that Thanksgiving should have been canceled or was supposed to be canceled. Hopefully you uh, did not pay any attention to that and you just went ahead and celebrated with friends and family because togetherness uh, is incredibly important. I, I heard a story about a, uh, a man uh, living in Phoenix. This, uh, this man had two children, grown children. One son lived in New York City. Another uh, daughter lived in Chicago. And uh, the day before Thanksgiving, the man called his son. And he said to his son these words, which were very disturbing. He said, I, I hate to ruin your day. I hate to ruin your Thanksgiving. But I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. We have decided after 45 years of, uh, of being married, 45 years of misery is enough, and we have decided we are going to divorce. We're sick of each other, and I'd like you to go ahead and call your sister and let her know what's going on. So the son frantically hung up the phone, called his sister who was in Chicago. His sister picked up the phone. He talked to his sister and said, dad just called and said that mom and he are getting divorced. The, the, the girl just flipped out. She said, like, heck, they're getting divorced. I'm going to take care of this. And she said, I'll call you right back. So she called her father who was in Phoenix and she told her father there in Phoenix, he, she said, you are not getting divorced. Don't you dare do a single thing until I get there. My brother and I, we were gonna get on the next flights. We will be there tomorrow. You do not do a single thing until we get there. The guy hung up the phone, the, the husband, uh, the father hung up the phone, turned to his wife who was sitting there next to him, and he said, honey, good news, our kids are coming for Thanksgiving after all. And the best news of all, we don't have to pay for their plane tickets this year. So hopefully you did not have a Thanksgiving like that. Hopefully you had a drama-free Thanksgiving and were able to celebrate and share uh, with your family and loved ones around you. This series, A Weary World Rejoices, you may be thinking, I, I know that line. I, I know that line. It comes from somewhere. Where does that line, A Weary World Rejoices, comes from? I know it sounds familiar to me. And if you think that it sounds familiar, you'd be right, because it comes from one of the most famous Christmas hymns of all time called, O Holy Night. And in the words of O Holy Night, it says this. It says, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A weary world. The world that is weary is longing for someone who can help, someone who can provide hope, someone who can meet our needs in the midst of the most traumatic time of life. Now, we are going through a traumatic time. We are going through a time where many of us feel weary. 
we're weary maybe because of the pandemic. Maybe you're weary because of some of the control and even tyranny at times that has been exercised around this pandemic. Maybe you're weary because it just seems like evil is, is pervasive in our world. Maybe you're weary because in the world you feel like there's a lack of moralities, that sin is just ever increasing, that people seem to pay less and less attention to God, that he seems to not matter at all anymore. In fact, we want to legislate him out of every possible thing in life. Maybe you're just weary. You know, a little perspective of that, being weary and in a weary world, how do you think people felt in the 1940s, 1942 through 45, when the world was at war? Where you think they would have been weary then because they were thinking about their, their loved ones maybe going off to war, maybe their kids, if they had kids that were that age, or maybe it was themselves going off to fight in a conflict. I think they were weary during World War I, during the Revolutionary War, during the Civil War, during times of life, people are wearied, and we are facing one of those times today. And so what the purpose of this series is to talk about how can we rejoice when we're in the midst of a weary world? Do we have anything to rejoice about? Can we rejoice about anything at all? Why should we rejoice? Well, each week for the next four weeks, we're going to look at one specific item of why we can rejoice, why we should rejoice, why we must rejoice in order to be able to make it through the things that we are going through. If you focus on what's going on in the present, if you focus on what is happening around you, if you listen to the narrative of the news media, you will be full of despair, hopelessness, and a lack of rejoicing. But if you listen to what God says, you have multiple reasons to rejoice. Today, the first reason that I want to give you of why we should rejoice is because Jesus is our hope. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray today that we would understand and we would see from your word how you are our hope, how we can find hope in you, how hope is found in nothing other than you. If we put our hope in people, if we put our hope in a government, if we put our hope in currency, if we put our hope in our, our retirement plans, if we put our hopes in our jobs, we will always be disappointed because it will never satisfy. But if we put our hope in you, we will find everything we need for life. If we put our hope in you, Lord, we will never be disappointed. If we put our hope in you, there will be no reason to ever feel hopeless or despair again. So Father, help us to put our hope in you. Be here today among us. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Share with each of us the things that we need to hear from you. Lord, give us an ability to understand and hear your truth today. Use this time for you to speak to your people. We thank you, Father, for loving us, for caring for us, and providing what we need in life, and that is hope. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You know, hope is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the world. People have a lot of faulty definitions about what hope is. They have a lot of misunderstanding about what the hope means. A lot of people use the word hope in place of the word wish. They wish things would happen. They wish things would work out the right way. They wish circumstances would change. That's not hope. That is wishful thinking. 
Wishful thinking is how most of us live life. We uh, live with this, this concept, this faulty concept, based upon what I want to see happen. For example, I want to see the Denver Broncos turn their season around and all of the sudden be Super Bowl contenders. That is a hope that I have, but that's not a hope. That's wishful thinking. That is the way wishful thinking works. Hope and wishful thinking are not the same. You may hope for a job, but really what you're doing is you're wishful thinking for a job. You may want things to be different in life, but really what you're doing is wishful thinking. That's not what hope is. Hope is something that is completely different from a wishful thought. There was a woman, a mom, who was driving around in her vehicle with her little daughter in the back seat. The daughter was four years old. The mom was a doctor. And the mom really was hopeful that her little girl would follow in her footsteps and become a doctor someday herself. But again, she's only four. Well, the mom was looking in the rearview mirror, seeing her daughter in the back seat. The daughter had gotten the mom's bag that was sitting right next to her. It was her medical bag. And the daughter pulled the stethoscope for her mom out of this bag and she began to play with it. So again, the mom was looking at this happening in the rearview mirror thinking, awesome. I hope, I really hope that she follows in my footsteps. I hope that this little girl becomes a doctor. All of those hopes, that wishful thinking was dashed when the little girl took the stethoscope, put it to her ears, and said these words, Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order, please? (laughs) That wishful thinking, that hopeful thinking in her mind was dashed because it wasn't really what hope is. You know, hope is something different. Hope is something necessary in life. It is something needed in life. And if you don't have hope, if you find others around you that don't have hope, you're going to find that they really feel hopeless. Hopelessness comes out of an emptiness that we feel on the inside. I feel empty. I feel directionless. I feel hopeless. I have nothing that I could put my hope in. Therefore, I feel despair. God does not like that. He is not like that. He wants us to have a firm foundation of hope within us. The Apostle Paul gave us the perfect picture of why we should have hope and where hope comes from and what hope does inside of us when he spoke about it in Romans chapter 15, verses 4 and 13. And that's what I'm going to look at today. Just two verses. Chapter 15 of Romans, verses 4 and 13. Just to remind you a little bit about the Apostle Paul and who he was and how he was writing this and how he was coming to this. Paul was not somebody who would be given to wishful thinking. Paul was not somebody who would be given over to just blind faith, blind hope, hope with no basis, hope with no foundation at all. Paul was incredibly intelligent. Paul was an intellect. Paul would have been of the top tier intellectually in our society today. A top IQ, he would have been one of the kind of people that would have gone to a prestigious college like a Harvard or an Oxford or a Stanford. He would have gone to an elite college because Paul was an incredibly deep, brilliant thinker. How do we know this to be the case? Well, Paul Not only church history tells us that's the case, but Paul was also a follower of a rabbi. Paul followed a rabbi called Gamaliel. 
Gamaliel was one of the top rabbis of the day. He was well respected. He was really ad, uh, admired across the country the way that we seem to admire athletes, actors, and actresses in our society today. Paul would have been following Gamaliel. That would have meant that Paul had to be accepted by Gamaliel to be one of his students, to be a pupil of this renowned rabbi. How would you become a pupil of a renowned rabbi? Well, there were really a couple of ways that that would happen. One, you had to excel in school. He would have had to have excel in what we would call elementary school or high school. He would have had to have been the top of his class. He would have had to have been extremely uh, intellectual in order to actually even be considered. In that day, for their schooling, one of the things that they would do is they would memorize all of what we call the Old Testament. That is two-thirds or more than two-thirds of our Bible. He would have had two-thirds of the Bible memorized. But not only memorized, it's not just enough to know the words, you would have to be able to reason with the words. One of the ways that they reasoned with words is through the ways that they asked questions. They could prove how much they know by the ways that they formed questions and asked questions. The intellectual thought process that would go into this. So Paul would have had to have had this memorized. He would have had to have been able to reason with this, asking, asking the kinds of questions. He would have had to have recited scripture even backwards. He would have to recite passages of scriptures backwards in order to please this rabbi to be accepted by the rabbi into the rabbi's teaching. He would have been the top of his class. He would have memorized this and known this. He would have been able to intellectualize with this in order just to be accepted by this rabbi. He would have done this his entire life. He would have been dedicated to this. Paul was not somebody who was simple. He was not foolish. He was not naive. He was somebody intellectually superior, brilliant. And even if you read through some of his letters in the New Testament, you will get that picture. If you read through Romans, or you read through Galatians, or you read through um, Thessalonians, if you read through any of those and you start thinking, I, I don't understand what he's even talking about. It's because he is on a level that is so high that you have to understand deep theological insights sometimes in order to understand what Paul is getting at. That is who Paul is. That is how profound Paul was. Paul had incredible hope, but his hope was not baseless. His hope was not blind. His hope was not without foundation. If Paul had that kind of hope, given the way that he was able to think and process, maybe we should consider having the same kind of hope. And I want to show you what Paul says of why he had the kind of hope that he had and why we can have the kind of hope that Paul had just by understanding what Paul is going to say. Let's look at this. Romans chapter 15 verses 4 and 13. I'm just going to cover those two verses. Here's what it says, and I'm going to highlight some words for you here today. And we're going to kind of attack this a little bit backwards. I'm going to take the most important part of it second and hit the first part of it, the definition of what hope is. So let's look at this. So Paul writes this. He says, for whatever was written before was written for our instruction so that through patience and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, now notice the word, we might have hope. Paul says, here's why I have hope. 
Then he goes on in verse 13 to say this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and shalom. The word shalom, in some of your Bibles, it's translated peace, but shalom is so much more than that. Shalom means, means um, completeness, wholeness, steadfastness, peace, all of those things rolled up into one. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and shalom, entrusting so that you may overflow with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, the Ruach HaKodesh. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul says, I have hope and I want you to overflow with hope as well. I have profound hope, Paul says. I'm going to tell you why I have hope and I want you to overflow with the same kind of hope that I have because if you do, it will change everything about your life. It will change the way you think. It will change the way you feel. It will change the way you process life. It will change everything inside of you if you have the kind of hope, Paul says, that I have. Let's look at this together. Let's start with the definition of the word hope. What is hope? Hope is not wishful thinking. It is not blind faith, blind hope. Hope is defined in this way. It is the Greek word which means the favorable and confident anticipation and expectation of good. So here's what Paul says. I have the confidence and the expectation and the anticipation that everything that God said is coming true. That's the kind of hope that I have. It's not blind hope. It's not, uh, it's not baseless hope. It is hope based upon everything that God has said. That's why I have this kind of hope. I have favorable, confident anticipation. I am anticipating God is going to return. I'm anticipating and confident in there is eternal life. I'm anticipating and I'm confident in that he will establish his kingdom, his reign, his rule, his authority. I'm confident in that he will bring his wrath. I'm confident in that he will gather his church and we will be with him forever. That's what Paul is saying. I have confident anticipation and expectation of the goodness of God. It reminded me of this Peanuts cartoon that maybe you saw before, but the Peanuts cartoon is uh, Lucy there with Linus. And Lucy says to Linus, go get me a glass of water. And Linus says, why should I do anything for you? You never do anything for me. And Lucy says, well, okay, on your 75th birthday, I'll bake you a cake. So he gets up and goes to get her the glass of water and he says, life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. That's what hope is. Hope is, I have something to look forward to. Do you know why people feel hopeless today? Because if you look today, there's nothing to look forward to. It has been a frustrating year. I have come to the point today, not today, this year, I hate the news. I hate turning it on. I hate watching it. I try to avoid it because it is pointless. It is hopeless. The media's narrative today is lies. They want the world to believe something. It is a propaganda machine. By the way, when we get back into our end time series, that is also the same mechanism deployed by Hitler at the time of the Nazis. It was a propaganda machine. The shutting down of free speech. I hate it. I'm sick of it. There's nothing to look forward to today if you look at the world today. If you look beyond 
and you have hope beyond, you have hope in God, there is something to look forward to. Life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. Do you know that people who are hopeless most often are not all that fun to be around? Do you know that people who have hope are joyful to be around? It's fun to be around because we have a commonality. We are looking forward to life beyond this. We have something that we can look forward to. So all of that said, so Paul says this, I have hope, but here's the real question, Paul. Where does your hope come from? Why do you have that kind of hope? How can I have that kind of hope with you? Why have hope? This is the most important thing that Paul is going to say, and it is mind-blowing the things that I'm going to show you right now. Paul says, why should I have hope? And here's his answer. For whatever was written before was written for our instruction so that through patience and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. Everything that was written before was written so that we could have hope. What was written before Paul? All of this. Two-thirds of the Bible, more than two-thirds of the Bible, actually. 39 books called the Tanakh. The Tanakh were written years before Jesus even came on the scene. The books of the New Testament, many of them were written by Paul because Paul, again, was so intellectually uh, and theologically sound that they took a lot of Paul's letters of encouragement and put them into what's called the New Testament. But the Old Testament is all that Paul had. He didn't have this. He just had this. And what is Paul saying? He's saying everything that was written before, all of this is the reason I have hope today. Because in this, you find everything that gives you hope. Most of us today do not know this. We don't, we don't know much about this. In fact, and I don't want you to raise your hands, but if I just asked you to be very introspective, and I said, how many of you have really read any of this? How many of you know what's in this? How many of you can really relate to the things that are in this? Most people would say, I, I don't know any of it. In fact, I barely know any of this, but I know nothing about this. In fact, I, th I thought it was a different God. I thought he was angry there and happy here, but that's not the case. It's the same God throughout. Paul says, this is why I have hope today. Okay, if that's why, what is it about this, Paul, that gives you hope today? Let me share with you what it is. Paul says, whatever was written before, this was for my instruction, so that through patience and encouragement of the scriptures, in other words, patiently studying the scriptures, being encouraged by the scriptures, I could have hope. Again, Paul's saying, I don't have baseless hope. I don't have foundationless hope. I don't have blind hope. Here is where my hope comes from. It's all this. What is it about this? Let me share with you what it is about this. In the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, there are countless numbers of prophecies. Prophecies are statements about what's going to happen. Prophecies in the Old Testament were about the coming Messiah, the Meshiach, 
the Messiah would be God's chosen one that would come and would fulfill everything that is written in the Old Testament. The one who comes is going to be God's Christ. It's going to be the Christos. It is going to be the anointed one, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And the Old Testament points to whom or what that Messiah would be. Okay, you follow with me so far. Paul spent his life searching this, studying this. He memorized it, so he already knew it. And he continuously was pointing out how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah that is talked about in the Old Testament. So Paul says, here's the reason I have hope, because there were these prophecies about who the Messiah would be. Jesus is the one that fulfilled all of them. Therefore, I have hope. Now, let me blow your mind just a little bit. In a paper published in 1944, a paper by a guy by the name of Peter Stoner, he, he was a mathematician, he was a statistician, and a scientist. And he wrote a paper called Science Speaks, and the subtitle was Scientific Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy in the Bible. Josh McDowell, in his book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he referenced this article given by Peter Stoner. Now listen to this. This is incredible. In Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell says this. He says the following probabilities are taken from Peter Stoner in his article, 1944 research article called Science Speaks, to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. Stoner says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to eight prophecies, we find that the chance of any man that uh, with the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one in 100 quadrillion. Now, if you don't understand what I just read, let me explain it to you this way. There are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming Messiah. Paul would point out often, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah that the Old Testament is talking about. Let's say this, and this is what Peter Stoner's argument was. He says, let's say that there were eight prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Eight. The odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies, the odds of that happening are one in 100 quadrillion. Now, have you seen like the odds of winning the lottery the, the odds of that, they're like a third of what that is. You have a better chance of winning the lottery than a person would have of fulfilling eight prophecies. He went on to further explain it this way. Eight prophecies. Let's just, just pick out eight prophecies in the Old Testament. Eight of them. He said the odds of that happening and being fulfilled by the same one person are the same odds as if you took a bunch of 100 quadrillion silver dollars and you spread them over the state of Texas. If you did that, they would completely cover the state of Texas. Not just a little bit of covering, it would be two feet deep across the entire landmass of Texas. That's the same 
number. If you took all of those coins, you spread them out all over the state of Texas, and they were two feet deep, and you took one single coin, and you made a special marking on that one single coin, and you put it somewhere in that two-foot deep covering of the state of Texas, and then you took one person, and you blindfolded that person, and you said, go ahead, wander around as long as you would like to. When you're done wandering, stop, dig down through the coins, and pick one up. One person fulfilling eight prophecies in the Old Testament has the same chance of one man blindfolded wandering across the state of Texas, digging in two feet deep of silver dollars and pulling out that one exact coin that needed to be pulled out. That's impossible. It's an impossibility. So Peter Stoner argues this. There is no humanly way possible that one man could possibly fulfill all of the prophecies that are stated in the Old Testament. And that's just eight of them. Well, well, was his work ever uh, scrutinized by outside people? It was. In fact, they published this along with his article by the American Scientific Affiliation. Outside mathematicians, statisticians, scientists reviewed his work, did his work, and they came up with this statement. The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability, which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Okay, are you following this? The odds of one guy fulfilling eight prophecies are impossible. But he goes on to say this. Okay, let's suppose, now the Old Testament has far more than eight. So Stoner said, okay, what if we had 48 prophecies? What are the odds of one guy fulfilling 48 of the prophecies? One guy, not multiple guys, one guy fulfilling 48 prophecies. What are the probabilities of that? He said, well, if there were 48 prophecies and one guy fulfilled 48 prophecies, the probability of that happening would be one in 10 to the 157th power. Do you know what that number looks like? Here's what the number looks like. That's the odds of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies in the Bible. Do you know after you get past the 50th zero, the, uh, the, uh, the statisticians say it's absolutely, it can't even happen. After the 50th zero, it cannot possibly happen. Do you know that a 10 with 50 zeros behind it is a number equal to the electrons in the known universe? That's 48 prophecies. Do you know that Jesus didn't fulfill only eight or 48 but he fulfilled 300 plus prophecies that are found in the Old Testament. That is absolutely an impossibility unless he's really God and unless God is behind it all. So what does Paul say? He says, look, here's why I have hope because everything that is written here and all I did was read through it, he says, and I studied it with patience 
And as I studied this with patience, and I read through this with patience, and I saw all of the prophecies about the Messiah, and I realized and saw that Jesus fulfilled all of them intellectually with reason, I know that Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, I have hope. Do you know, Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies that it is an impossibility. You have to absolutely flat out deny him, deny his existence, deny what the Bible says. It takes more faith to not believe Jesus than it does to believe he is who he says he is. So a weary world rejoices. Why do we rejoice? Because like Paul said, we have hope. Now, throughout this entire Christmas series, I'm going to show you some of the prophecies. Let me, let me just give you, I picked out just uh, the first kind of four on the list just to show you. And I'm going to show you bunches that are even more detailed. But look at this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first prophecy in the Bible, God says to Satan, he says, I'm going to put animosity between you, Satan, and the woman, between you and Eve, between your seed and her seed. Who is her seed? It is the one coming out of her line, the one that will come out to destroy. He says, look, you, he, her seed, the one that will come out of that line, will crush your head. Now, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to crush his heel. You're gonna, he's going to destroy you, though. Well, that's a picture of the cross. On the cross, Jesus was bruised. He was bruised and crushed for our transgressions. But he won and destroyed Satan in the process. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. 700 years before Jesus was on the scene, therefore Adonai himself said, he will give you a sign. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive. When she is giving birth to a son, she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, what does Emmanuel mean? It just means she's going to call him God with us. That is exactly who Jesus is and was. He came as God with us. God who was among the people. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, of the increase of the Messiah's government and shalom, completeness, wholeness, there will be no end. On the throne of David, in the lineage of David, in the line of David, which Jesus came through, he will... Uh, he will be on the throne and over his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it through justice and righteousness from now on until forevermore. The zeal of Adonai Zavot, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. In Jeremiah, 600 years before Jesus was on the scene, behold, days are coming. It is a declaration of Adonai. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch coming out of the line of David. He, the one who comes, will reign as king wisely. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. And this is his name by which he will be called. He will be called Adonai, the Lord, our righteousness. That is who Jesus is. He is our righteousness. That's who the Messiah would be. Micah chapter 5 tells us where the Messiah would even be born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, 
least among the clans of Judah. From you will come out to me one to be ruler in Israel. One whose goings forth are from of old, from days of eternity. Meaning, the one who's going to be born and come out of you is old. He was there at the time of the creation. He has been there all the time. This is who the Messiah would be. Jesus fulfilled all of these. Where was he born? In Bethlehem. Who would he be? He would be the Messiah who would be crushed and do the crushing when he was crushed. He will be our righteousness. He will be the one coming out of the line of David. He will be king of kings, lord of lords. He will come out of the line of Judah, who was the ruling group of the day. This is who Jesus is. So Paul says, whatever was written before was written for our instruction so that through patience and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Now look at this. What does that hope do for you? Look what he says. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and shalom. The hope that you have received from God, do you know what that does inside of you? It makes your life full of joy. I have something I can look forward to. I don't have to look to the here and the now. I don't look, have to look to the turmoil across our country and our world. I can look beyond this. I have joy despite the circumstances. And I have shalom. What is shalom? Shalom is completeness, wholeness, fullness. I am full. I'm content. I'm complete. I have peace because of the joy that God has given me from the hope that he has in given to me. That's where I have all of this from. And then when that happens in trusting, you may also overflow with the hope in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. God fills you with hope. You have joy and completeness and wholeness inside. And when you have that, you start overflowing with hope everywhere you go. See, many people put their hope in their stock portfolios. They put it in their retirement plans. They put it in their jobs. They put it in their possessions. They put their hope in a family member, in a friend, in a boyfriend, in a girlfriend. They put their hope in places that will never satisfy. Do you know where you ultimately get life from? It's through hope in Jesus. You get hope. You're filled with joy. You're filled with shalom. And when you go out about life, you just radiate you just overflow with hope everywhere you go. So let me wrap it up with this whole last thought. When you have the kind of hope that Paul had, not blind hope, not, not uh, unbasist hope, not foundationless hope, but when you have hope here, all of these things that Jesus fulfilled, that's my hope. This is, this is impossible. Has to be God. If that becomes my hope, like Paul did, it will change my life. Here's how it will change my life. I will begin to have a hope, or rather a joyful, confident expectation in three things. That God is real, that God is right, and that God is relevant. God is real. He is there. He is the creator. He is the author, the perfecter. He is the beginning and the end. He is real. There is no other way. 
I don't know how you could more elaborately create a hoax in this. The, 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 it's an, that's an impossibility. It's, it's either God is real or there is some genius behind this entire thing that created this. It's more faith to believe that there is some hoax than to believe that God is real. God is real. If God is real, that then means that God is right. That means his word is right. That means everything that he says in his word is right. The things that I want to agree with and the things that society says don't agree with, I'm sorry, God is right because God is real. If God is real and God is right, then God has to be relevant to my life. That means that everything he says should have a direct impact upon my life. I can't pick and choose what it is that I want to believe, what it is that I like, what it is that I don't like. I want to mark her out some stuff that I don't like, and I'll, I'll circle the things that feel good and I do like. I can't do that anymore. Because if God is real and God is right, then God is relevant. That's how hope changes us. Paul says, I have hope, but it's not without intellect. It's not without reason. It's not without basis. I have hope built upon a firm foundation that it, it's an impossibility that can't, it could be anything other than God. And he constantly pointed back to that every time he taught and every time he preached and every time he wrote, it was pointing back to the scriptures being fulfilled in Jesus. God is right. God is real. Therefore, God has to be relevant. And when I make God relevant in my life, I begin to have a hope. And when I have that kind of hope, I have a joy and a completeness that I've never known before. Do you have that kind of hope in your life today? The kind of hope where you can say with Paul, God is, he's real. He is right. And he is relevant. Would you pray with me? Father, I just pray today that we would have the kind of hope that Paul had. Not hope that is blind, not hope that has no intellect with it, but hope based upon reason and soundness. Hope based upon the proof in your word. Lord, it is an impossibility that someone, that one person could fulfill all of the prophecies that you fulfilled unless this was all orchestrated by God. That it was all accomplished through him and that Jesus is truly the Messiah. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, Lord, and we are realizing that he is real, therefore he also must be right. And if you're real and your word is right, it needs to become relevant. Instead of denying your word, living the way that we want to live, excusing your word, marking out your word, that we would start taking your word seriously. Father, I pray that we would have hope in a world that is weary, that we would rejoice today because Jesus is our hope. Father, thank you for meeting with us today. I pray, Father, that you would continue to speak to our hearts and help us to walk with you 
by faith, trusting you, having hope, a hope that produces joy and completeness in our lives. We thank you for our time together. Bless each one as they leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please?